Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self or the true self. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our show, we talk to leaders who went through the process of clearly understanding their true selves and articulating their core values. These leaders make decisions and take actions that are always consistent with those values. Our guests take us through their journey of self-discovery, share their successes, and are candid about their challenges. And because authentic leadership requires engaging your whole self, we also talk about how their personal passions intersect with and support their professional life. Our guest today is Rishato Bakawala, author of the wonderful book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Rishad is currently a senior advisor to the Policies Group, where he had a long and remarkable career, most recently serving as the chief growth officer and chief strategist. His pioneering innovations in marketing and advertising have been recognized by Business Week, which named him one of the top business leaders, by Time Magazine, which named him one of the top five marketing innovators, by Ad Age, which named him to the Interactive Hall of Fame, and by the Chicago Ad Federation, from which he received a Lifetime Achievement Silver Medal Award. What makes Rashad remarkable is his ability to bridge the world of data and technology with the human side of business. We started our conversation from his career journey and talked about how he used his early experiences to identify and understand the qualities that help leaders attract and retain the best talent. We then shifted to the personal side and discussed what it really means to define success and how important it is to define it for yourself rather than have others define it for you. Now, since this interview was conducted in the summer of 2020, we also talked about how the pandemic affected and will affect the way that we think about our priorities. As usual, we'll close our conversation with the term of business cliche that drives Rishad crazy. And on the top of his list, Rishad put a term that became very popular during the pandemic. In full disclosure, I spent a portion of my career at Digitus, an agency that is now part of the Publicis Group. But I was there before the acquisition, and so this was the topic of our small talk at the beginning of our conversation. Rashad and I did not cross path. Uh, I had left Digitus by the time Publicis bought it, but uh, we, I, I first came into him with a post that was shared by a former colleague of mine. And I was struck by the fact that uh, his approach to leadership comes from a very human side. But um, unlike most of leaders who talk about the importance of human contact, his background was actually in data and math. And so he's uniquely qualified to talk about the balance and the importance, in, in, especially in today's age, to balance humanity with technology and data with story. So, Rashad, thank you very much for joining us. You know, thank you for inviting me. Just to start out, do you want me to give our listener your background and your story? So, I grew up in India, in the city of Bombay, now known as Mumbai. When I was young, I wanted to be a writer. My parents said three issues. Number one is you have nothing to say, so live a little bit. Uh, issue number two is we don't know if you've got any talent in that space. And issue number three is writers don't make any money, so you should actually get a real job or a real education. 
I ended up basically going to university in India and getting a degree in advanced mathematics, which is about as far away from a writing career as one could be. I came to the University of Chicago, which is a very quantitative school, to get an MBA in finance and marketing. And then I wanted to, and I was very interested in marketing, and I began to realize that where I could integrate business and art was in the marketing business. And specifically, there was an agency in Chicago called Leo Burnett, which was privately held uh, in those days, this was 40 years ago, almost McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, and Leo Burnett were seen as equivalent in their categories. So sort of McKinsey was the Uber consulting company, Goldman Sachs, the White Glove, you know, White Shoe Investment Bank, and Leo Burnett, uh, privately held, operating out of one office in Chicago, 32 blue chip clients like McDonald's and Kellogg's and things like that. So I joined them and I thought I'd spend a couple of years, get my green card and then go get myself a job, another job. And either through a testament to either loyalty or unemployability, I stayed there for 38 years. Uh, but I didn't stay in Leo Burnett for 38 years. I stayed in Leo Burnett. Uh, from 1982 to 1995. In 1995, I helped launch an interactive agency called Giant Step with two other colleagues. It was majority owned by Leo Burnett. I remained a Leo Burnett employee, but I took the name off the door, left the building into a loft in Greektown. Interesting. Like, you know, Leo Burnett, for me, is one of those great leadership stories, like the, the speech when you can take my name off the door. So I was the first person who said it's time to take the name off the door. And I left, not only took the name off the door, but left the building. Obviously, I had to get permission, go to the board, all of that. I left the building, uh, helped create Giant Step. We grew it from three people to 120 people profitably over three years. Then I came back to the Leo Burnett building because a colleague of mine or other, uh, someone senior to me, wanted to use the same logic and take the name off the door of the media department and call it Stockholm. So I joined Stockholm. I launched the Stockholm's digital operation and joined the Stockholm board. And then, you know, we merged and we got acquired. So in those years, I eventually built the case and ended up actually even chairing companies like Digitas and Razorfish. Then for the last five, six years of my career, I basically got onto the direct to Plus, which is like the board of Publicis. And I was um, the chief strategist of the group, the chief growth officer of the group. And in 2000, a year ago at this time, I stopped working full time for the company uh, as part of a two to three year plan. So I had worked for the um, last 20 years of my career there for two gentlemen, both of whom retired. So in the second one, which is Maurice Levy, sort of stepped down. Uh, I asked if I could within a couple of years also step down and they allowed it. Uh, I, however, still remain connected to the company as an advisor, and I still have an office and I still have email, but I'm now not a employee or a director, so I'm a free agent. I'm a company of one. And part of the reason I wanted to do this is remember how this all started. I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. So 40 years later, I actually had something to say, which is number one. Number two, writing a blog for 10 years, which people liked, I decided maybe I had some talent. Mm -hmm. And the third one was they don't make any money. After 40 years, it didn't matter if I made any money writing. So I therefore said, now I'm going to do what I wanted to do in the first place. And I had the opportunity of 
getting an advance from HarperCollins to write a book, which has done very well in the first five months. And that's the one you referred to. And that's the full circle. That's a fabulous story. And, and I, you know, one that really resonates with me because I, as I shared with you before the episode, I have bounced back and forth also in my career between wanting more on the artist side and then being in the hardcore business. What I'm curious about, you know, obviously you have a, you know, you have your own authentic voice as an author and, and, and you're, you're, you're putting forward a very strongly felt point of view in the book. And what I'm curious is, you know, it takes time in the, as one progresses through life and through work to start forming what are the core values. And, and so what are some of turning points as you think back to your career where you started really articulating to yourself what it was authentic to you as a leader and what authenticity is and then how that translated in the way you work with people. One of the key things is, you know, the first part of your career, the first 10, 15 years, regardless of what level they give you and what titles they give you, you pretty much are a worker. Yeah. You know, they pay you a little bit more. They give you a fancy title. You might get a bigger office, but you primarily are at the mercy of your boss or bosses, and you have like a boss and a boss's boss, etc. Over those 10, 15 years, both because I was working across a lot of different clients, I was working across divisions, I got to sample a lot of different management styles. Mm-hmm. And I determined very quickly that what mattered to me more than the assignment was who I was working for. That I found this really insightful thing that working for a fantastic boss in a smelly bathroom is better than working for a terrible boss in a rose garden. I think that it, that, that is very true. So, And I also, in my you know, little mind, thought I was a talented person. So I said, as a talented person, if I believe so, it could possibly be true that other talented people also believe so. Mm-hmm. And I also realized that most of my success was driven not by necessarily myself, but both by having supportive bosses, but most importantly, great people around me, whether it was colleagues or, you know, people who were reporting into me. And so I thought that someone who can have a disproportionate share of talent working with them is likely to succeed. But it looks like the people who are very talented like working for bosses who have certain characteristics. And one of them is they tend to basically be people who are capable, who actually know what they're doing. They're not fake bosses. They actually know their deal. Right. The second is they have a sense of integrity. And integrity meaning not just that they're trustworthy, but they deal with real facts, including data, and -hmm. see the situation as it is and not like, well, I refuse to acknowledge reality. But as importantly, empathy that they cared about other people, et cetera. And then, you know, that they can say they're wrong, which is vulnerability. And the fifth one was uh, inspiration. They can inspire you to do things. And so I said, these seem to be the characteristics. So how do I learn to build those characteristics? And that's what I believe. So my initial philosophy was that success depends on working very well with other people. And people like working with people who have these five characteristics and who make them feel either connected to a community, make them believe they are growing, yes, which is you know extremely important, and who believe that they are working for something 
or a cause or a purpose that they believe in. So that was my second group of insights, which is, well, these are the capabilities of a leader. I'm happiest or people tend to be happiest. Obviously, you need a certain amount of money, fame, and power. But what really separates is this whole idea of growth and purpose and connectedness. Yeah. I used that mostly as I moved into the next 20 years of my career when I became half a worker and half a boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then over the years, as I became mostly a boss who didn't do any work, I kept that in mind and that became a driving philosophy, if that made sense. And then there was a second one, which I thought was very important. And that occurred like midway through my career when, or about 15 years into my career, when I began to really see that there were some new things happening in the industry. And if I wanted to learn them, I would basically have to give up large teams and go and do it myself. Uh, and I figured out a way how to do it without losing compensation. And I found a way to convince people that my worth was not based on the revenue that I was connected to or the number of people I was managing, but the importance of new areas. And when I started doing that, which I was fortunate again that I had management that allowed that, a lot of my colleagues believed that I was making a mistake because I was giving up what was considered to be power, which was revenue and control of people. My basic belief was power may be your ability to manage, change, learn new skill sets and grow and be relevant to the future. And in about two or three years, it became very clear that I was right and they were wrong. And as the world started becoming digital and direct marketing oriented. They were seen as highly expensive people with yesterday's skill sets but they refused to do the new thing because it was difficult. They thought this wouldn't happen for years and years and years. So my second, so my, you know, my philosophy is good bosses are like this. People want this and me individually has to deal with change. And if I don't, I'll become irrelevant, however difficult it is. And those have been my philosophies. Yeah, so what's really interesting, I think, the point that you brought up when you decided to start going into areas that required you to give up you know, a large number of people or a large number of revenue, there was a point in your book that really resonated with me, which I think is one of the hardest transitions that people have to make in their careers, which is uh, you say, leave and work in your own mind and not in the mind of others. I think it is very difficult you know, one of the most difficult transitions that people make in their career is to realize that they need to set up their own goals and measure their own success on what's important to them. It, it, it is, and it's one of the things that my daughters, our daughters, who are now in their 30s, um, basically said, there goes dad again, because telling us that, you know, we should live, right? And I said, look, hey, listen, because one of our daughters, both of them, have managed career transitions and one of them has done something which people would think ridiculous. So she was highly successful at Google. She was at Google, highly successful, paid really well. Yeah. And she decided that her real passion was to make movies. Uh, and so she decided to basically leave Google and apply and get an MFA at Tisch at NYU. And start a career where she was going to be paid one third of what she left, even after she got two additional degrees, which was an MBA and an MFA, uh, because she had this passion. So she's now an assistant to a showrunner for a show that will appear on Apple Plus 
Okay. She enjoys what she does. She's learning a whole bunch. But if you look at her financial decision over the last five years, um, if she had lived on the ruler of how much money I make and how I go into a large corporation, uh, she has probably not done a good thing. But if she looks at the fact that she's doing what she particularly loves, is starting to do it really well, has got her movie into places like Tribeca, has got her, th- right? Uh, and is working as an assistant show to the showrunner and learning a lot, though she gets, doesn't pay that much, but is learning a lot, then I would say that is successful. And, you know, one of the key things I remind people is when, you know, you have these stories where people are dying and they look back on their life, like what did they wish they had done? And, you know, things like I wish I hadn't worked so hard or I wish I'd spent more time with my family. Those are some of the things that you hear. But there's another thing that you hear. And the thing that you hear the best way to say it is we tend to regret errors of omission more than we regret errors of commission, right? We regret the things we wish we had done much more than things we did and that didn't work out. Okay. So, so in effect, it's like the road not taken is what we regret more then, well, we took the road and it turned out to be a goddamn dead end. And then we took another road, it turned out to be a dead end. So that, obviously, we don't exactly celebrate that, but we don't regret that as much as this. And so I always tell people, you got one goddamn life, right? Therefore, not only don't live in, but the other is what someone told me, and this is something that I learned a long time ago. Uh, and in one of my recent pieces, it's a line that resonates. So I wrote this piece on COVID-19 called The Great Reinvention. And one of my pieces of advice to a lot of people is use this to significantly cut your living costs because you've begun to realize that you don't need that much. Okay. Uh, Most of us are wearing the same two or three things every day for six months. Okay. Uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff that we thought we needed. We really don't need. And there are things that were important, which we may not have, but, but most of those things like peace of mind and friendship, a little bit of space and stuff like that have got nothing to, not all of them have got to do with how much money you have. Some of them do, not all of them. I'm not saying money isn't important, but at some particular stage. But therefore, the line is do not price yourself out of your dream, which is your plan B is really your plan A. The only reason it's plan B is because you've decided you need to basically have a two bedroom apartment in Manhattan down you know, in Chelsea, right? And forget that. And that is, I think, a big part of what will also happen because of COVID-19, which is people are basically beginning to look at two things. They're basically looking at their own mortality. This makes you think because you might get sick. Sickness can be everywhere. You see people dying. Um, But you also basically realize that, hey, you know, I have to live by myself now. And I think, oh, you know, just husband or wife or whatever it is. And what exactly makes me happy? Uh, and so I, I really do believe that in many ways coming out of this tragedy, which obviously is significant global with many millions of people, both impacted and millions, you know, by the time it's done dying. Uh, but when, it, when, when, when that's, and, but coming out of it, there may actually be not that I would wish this on anything or anybody, society may come out transformed for the better. A lot of individuals may come because it gives you a sense of pause. 
I think, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about the end of life and there's one of the posts that you shared on Facebook, sorry, on LinkedIn, and that I tell all my coaching client now is you have a post where you said, take 85. Yes. Remove your current age, time 365. That's the time you have leaving. But what I find really powerful about that post is not that math because that math is good for it, but it is the second part of the post that says when your boss asks you to work over time, you're paying with your life. Right. Or when someone basically says, like, I want you to work for free, right? Uh, you're paying with your life. Yes. And what tends to basically happen is if someone asks me to work for free and I like the person, I basically say yes for two reasons. The one is because I'm trying to help somebody and I'm actually getting paid in something, in my case, more important than compensation, which is goodwill and good karma and building brand and reputation, all of that, right? But it's, I'm not doing it under force. Like I, even today, I do 80 to 90% of what I do is I actually do it for free. Uh, but that's because I have the ability to, I'm my own boss. But if someone comes with a gun to my head or a client says you have to do this for half the price, right? I realize that really it's not the price. It's like I'm giving up a whole part of my life. And I have to elegantly find a way to tell them that without obviously losing the business or the client. Yeah, so what So what you're saying is very interesting because I think one of the elements uh, that is important to me is the idea and that I, I brought into my personal life from my experience as a digital marketer is this idea that like in digital marketing, you have the opportunity to, you know, you set up a goal and then there are certain tactics that work better for that goal. And then you need to choose the right measure because there's so much you can measure. And the example that I bring up, I spent the early years of my career in digital marketing fighting with clients who wanted to put uh, banner ads in market because they wanted to increase visibility and brand and reputation and then would cut the budget because the click through of the digital ad wasn't you know and like, well, you're not measuring the same thing so if you think about you know starting different measure when you know think of the measurement of success in a broader way in a personal life what are some of the measures that are important to you and so to, to me there are three or four key things so uh, the the way i sort of define success uh, is the ability for a person to spend their time the way they want to. Okay. So if you are spending your time the way you want to, and the more percent of your time you're spending the way you want to, it is success. And which basically means if you get to spend 70, 80% of your time the way you want to, that's pretty interesting, right? If it's 100%, you probably have died and gone to heaven and you probably are around. But, you know, <laughs> 70 to 80%. And throughout my career, I always basically said I like my job 70% of the time. I don't like it 30%. They pay me for the other 30%, right? Now, obviously, there are times when I hated it for an entire month, 100%. But overall, it tended to be like 70, 30, right? And I would figure out why I didn't like it and how to change it, etc. So one of those things is, if you can spend the time the way you want to, because in that line, I basically say the way you spend your time is the way you spend your life, right? That becomes extremely important. That's that's the, the selfish part of it, which is if you are happy the way you spend your time. And that means it's not even a value judgment. If somebody believes that their happiness is 
fishing all the time and they live in a small hut and eat fish and figure out a way to manage that is success as much success as someone who says i want to make a billion dollars and gets to make the billion dollars that is success too it's just this person's happiness comes from this and this person's happiness comes from this so my stuff isn't like i want to do this and you want to do that and you suck and i don't no 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 if that's what you think you want to do more power to you this is what i want to do i do pay attention though when other people have success met not success metrics how they get happy and that's not because i'm like saying like like do i envy them it's like do they know something that i don't know and should i actually think about what they're doing maybe i maybe maybe fishing is the ultimate growth to happiness right or maybe whatever it is uh, and then i say no i actually tried fishing i don't like it so no okay not for me for them yes right uh, so that's one thing then there's another one which is less about a person so i basically believe that the second thing is that that there are some givens in life and there are some amazing things in life so the givens in life is all of us will have to deal with the following three things we will basically have to deal with loss mm-hmm. and if we're lucky we will get to deal with love and the third is either because of loss or because of love or because of other things we'll be if we're cool we'll get to learn so in effect my basic belief is people who learn how to deal with loss which means they treasure all the time because you will lose everything and at some particular stage you will lose your life so therefore treasure your time that's my thing there about loss but also recognize that loss is loss in whether you lose an account you lose a job you lose a loved one you lose you know a lover whatever it is but uh, so that's one part of it that ideally if you have human connections which i put under and the love it could be friends you love lovers you love kids you whatever love right that is a key thing and then the other one is learning which is you can improve your mind and you can get better everything from being more disciplined to knowing more things and also dealing with loss of love so i basically think about those things so in effect my whole stuff is how do i help people as much as i can while still trying to spend the time i want to and what i decided is i get happy helping people unless they put a gun to my head then i'm not happy okay so one is so so that is and i'm building goodwill not necessarily love but that but i'm helping people they're helping me i feel good on the learning thing i make a make a point you saw in my book i have a chapter called how to upgrade your mental operating system and there's also emotional operating system i spend a lot of time trying to learn and i try to say okay how why am i better off today more am i you know to, not financially but are my habits better my behaviors at by the way i reflect to the world that's the other stuff and then you know with the, with the whole idea of loss is recognizing that all around me people are struggling while i might in that moment not be at loss someone else might be and so therefore you need to err in the direction of kindness and what is tended to basically happen is when you do that you end up recognizing that helping other people is a great way of spending your time in the ways that give you joy it's this odd thing so it isn't necessarily fishing it might be teaching someone to fish might be even better than fishing for yourself that is a great point and very much in line with um what you write in your book and in some of your posts um 
I want to bring it back to leadership. And uh, specifically, you talk a lot about uh, how learning is important and how a great leader or a great boss is somebody who is truly invested in the learning and the development of their employees. So in that spirit, as you think about your leadership style and the traits that you look for in leaders you work with, what are two or three tips um, that you could share with our listeners who are actually working on developing their own leadership style or just becoming better leaders? Sure. So, so I will give it to you in uh, three very quick answers, right? So the first is recognize that to be a good leader, you try to have as many of these five characteristics that I mentioned, which is you have to know what the hell you're doing in your field. So you have to have a sense of craft and expertise. Uh, and that's number one, which is capability. You want to have integrity. You want to basically have empathy. You want to think about other people. Vulnerability means willing to say you're wrong and inspire people, especially when times are tough, right? So you want to try to say, how do I learn how to do those? Then the second one is to recognize that all of us are human. And just like we have the story and the spreadsheet, we also have silicon and carbon. So silicon is basically, you know, we live, as I say, in a data-driven silicon digital age, but we are carbon-based analog feeling people. Uh, so similarly, every one of us has the ability to be a good boss or a bad boss. And under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, something shows. So under a lot of pressure, some of our bad boss things might come out. And sometimes under the best of services, maybe the good boss comes out. But so it isn't that all of us are either angel or devil. We basically have both of those characteristics. But the good bosses tend to be angel 85% of the time. And usually when they are the devil 15 or 10% of the time, they don't do things that are like really devilish. They do things that they are not proud of, but they very quickly acknowledge that they made a mistake or someone tells them or they've created a character. So if someone says, what the hell are you doing, Michelle? You're like an idiot right now. Why are you behaving like this? So if they've actually built a team, someone will stop them even before they go completely into the dark side and say, why are you doing this? Or they'll say, oh shit, I'm sleeping over and I come back. But so what happens is the good bosses, right? Um, have these capabilities. On the other hand, the bad bosses had we are the capability is to watch out that you don't do that. So part of that is there are four characteristics that we all have, and I have displayed at least three of them in my career. Uh, not the fourth one, okay, as best as I can tell. But I've done the th three, uh, and I'm not saying one is worse than the others. So one is the narcissist. Okay, so the narcissist is. is it's all about me, and if I wasn't here, everybody would be going to hell in a handbasket. So we all have that, which is one. Uh, the second one is basically the micromanaging fiddler. Now, I tend not to have that at all. In fact, I have the reverse, which is I have a very hands-off style. But if I'm under real pressure for a new business pitch, I might become, compared to my normal style, a little bit of a micromanaging fiddler. Uh, which The third one is the Oscar contender. So the Oscar contender is I don't know how to communicate with someone, so I do it through like emotion. And in you know, and some people yell and scream and slam doors, and I just like don't talk to anybody or just you know move away and things like that. So it's like the silent treatment, right? Which is, 
And the last one is the double-crossing assassin, which I don't think I've ever done, which is you basically tell somebody one thing and you go tell their boss the other thing or the client another thing and the, nobody knows how to trust. Yeah. I have clearly done the first three. As far as I know, I haven't done the last one, but, you know, we, we know. But we, I'm perfectly capable because I've thought at times to basically stab someone to death behind their back, but that, I've not done it which is a different thing. Um, and they deserved it, but I still didn't do it, which is which is a fine thing. So you have to second do that. The last one, so one is, you know, clearly understand what the good boss is. Second is recognize that even if you're a good boss, you may have these bad characteristics and you know, control them. The third one is this, which is my particular style. And my particular style is that you need a team and good teams are like sports teams. And sports teams uh, have sets of rules, but the reason they win is because of two things. They have a, three things. They have a disproportionate share of talent. So a team that usually wins has better talent on average. Okay, Not every time, but that's one. Second is they're unified. They're unified. So they have the culture, so their talent doesn't work against each other. They go to each other on. And the last one is they have a common goal. So disproportionate talent unified against a common outcome or a common goal. So I've learned that from sports. So what I basically do is I say, I got to figure out how to attract the best talent, which I've told you that I now realize they want growth and they want connectedness. So I make sure I give them that. So I said, okay, rule number one, I've got disproportionate share of talent. Number two, I work very hard at the culture. And the culture that I basically create is a culture of freedom. So the idea basically is you should be free to try things, make mistakes, say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. And as long as it's not like absolutely stupidly racist or sexist, right? You can say what you want. And, and, Sometimes you say things, you say that was a stupid thing to say, or someone says it's stupid, and that's fine. But it's not like you are like doomed for your career, etc. Because in it, if you are capable of taking risks and making mistakes and innovation, and if your intent is not to hurt anybody, but you come up with some stupid thoughts, that's perfectly fine because you need to be. So I create a culture where people feel safe and free. And it's very hard, which is you can say what you want. But everybody needs to feel safe, and and you know that that's that's the second one, um, which is important, and that's a big thing. And then the last thing that I basically do, which is important, is I spend a lot of time backing up my people. So if a client would call me and say, you know, Dino sucks, okay, I'll say two things to the client. Number one is, have you told Dino? He sucks. And they say, no. So I said, I would recommend that first tell me why he sucks, but why don't you tell him why he sucks, right? And after you tell him why he sucks, then you either call me or he'll come and talk to me anyway and say, my client called me and I sucked and I don't suck or I do suck and here's what I'm going to do. But I said, don't call me, you call Dina. Okay. Mm -hmm. Second is I said, I'm not certain that Dino sucks. I actually think Dino's really good. But if he sucks, you should tell him, right? And you can tell me, but I'm not going to tell him. You need to tell him 
because I'm not going to go tell him. Mm-hmm. And, and he'll rectify it because in most cases, I don't even think he's made a mistake. He'll explain to you what happened. But if he doesn't, then I will talk to Dino and then Dino will get back to you. So in effect, what basically happened, the clients would basically say, this guy believes the people around him are really good, right? And my thing was to everyone around me, if it's a yellow alert, I don't even want to know. You go fix it, okay? Mm-hmm. If it's an orange alert and you know it's an orange alert, sometimes you don't know it's an orange alert, but if you know it's an orange alert, I would like you to come to my office and tell me there's an orange alert and tell me what you're going to do to prevent it from being a red alert, Okay. And I listen to you. And if there's a reason I think it won't work or have a better idea, I'll tell you. Otherwise, it's your problem. Not your problem. I know what's going on. Go, what happens? When it turns into red, right? Mm -hmm. A, I know what the problem is. B, if I had had a better idea, I would have said so. Right? (laughs) But then me and the person goes and starts fighting the red alert and brings it back to orange, right? And we don't spend any time. You never told me. And at the same time, the client basically has already recognized that this guy is probably aware of what's going on. And he's still letting my lady or man handle this. And so guess what happens? People basically say, you're going to back me. So they'll sometimes come to me and say, I think this is actually a yellow alert. It isn't an orange alert. I'm taking care of it. But I just want to tell you like, what do you think of this? And my stuff is, it looks fine. Don't worry about it. And when a client or anybody basically believes that you are backing up your people, yeah, they actually believe you run a great team. Exactly. And your team basically won't let you down because they said this guy is going to go and take the bullets for us. You know, this is, this is an interesting point in the client services where something that has always puzzled me when a client has hired a service organization, whether it's a bank or an advertising agency or a consulting firm, when they throw that organization under the bus in front of their boss or in front of their company, they're basically saying, I made a mistake hiring this company. Yeah. And, and, and what's really interesting is how else will people grow, right? So I said, these, right. And, and, and it's so important because that's the thing. So those have been my like styles and it has worked. And I can tell you the reason why it works really well it becomes very clear very quickly to the client who the talent really is. So guess what happens? Even more talented people wanted to work with me because everybody knew who the star was. I wasn't stopped stepping into their goddamn video, right? Yeah, yeah, they're doing it. But the key was everyone said, but wait a second, this clown has got all these really great people around him. He must be good too, right? And my stuff is, yeah, I'm a good manager, right? in making sure these people are supported. And that is now my skill set. But I did have like a couple of special tricks that I was better than anything else, which everybody in the company knew, including my own team. And they would occasionally say, okay, this little thing, we they want some like Jedi Yoda trick, okay? And we do all real stuff. We do like Luke Skywalker, we blow up ships and all that. <laughs> and now they want something that's pretty stupid, but that's what you do. So will you please now we'll put you in a little crib and take you there and you do your little Jedi trick and come back. Okay. Uh, so so that's, they, they basically is called the, we want Rashad to talk to our board about something, right? At mid stage, I go, even if the topic is what these other people, and that's because I look aged and I speak with an Indian accent, so they think, oh my God, right? So I speak, right? Oh, 
That is so true. And thank you for bringing Star Wars into it. So I have a question here that I that has been actually has generated a lot more insights than I expected. And is I have a number of business sayings that just drive me crazy because they've been so overused. And so I always like to ask my guests, what is a saying or a business term or something that you feel is overused and that makes you crazy? The current term that I makes me crazy is new normal. Uh, and my whole stuff is like, you, people are crazy. There is no new normal. It's called the new strange. Like there's nothing got abnormal. Okay. We're not going back to the new normal. So it, you know, it tends to be like one of those things. The other one that makes me really crazy is any combination of the following four or five words, which are usually put in a particular sentence. Uh, one is called platform, right? The other is called data. The third is called disruption. The fourth is called personalization. And the fifth is called cloud. And if you like connect those five, right? I do personalization on a platform utilizing data to disrupt someone leveraging the cloud, something like that. You just need to add growth hacking to that term. Yeah. And so my thing is, I tell people like, okay, first of all, I don't think you'll even understand all these sentences you put together. But if you take away these... I always tell people, take away these following 10 words from the chat, the deck you just wrote, and all you'll have is and, the, e, that's all you'll have. You'll have all this like string of stuff. And a big part of it is I never use a lot of terms. And the reason I don't use a lot of terms is A, maybe because I don't understand them. So I said, let's keep away from them, but I actually do understand them. But I basically talk about them in English. Obviously, sometimes I have to use a term. I can't use a term, but it's like, hey, what does it mean? What is it in English? And one of the things I've always believed is you really know something when one of two things happen. You can teach it. And if you're a good teacher, what you're doing is you're simplifying down to core concepts without dumbing them down. So you're simplifying to the core concepts without dumbing it down. So you haven't basically you know, said you know, simplifying to a core concept is what a Fauci would do, right? Dumbing it down is what maybe the president of the United States would do. Right. So at some particular stage, that is the, the key thing. You need to basically simplify it. And both are very good communicators. But there's a point at which you can simplify it so much that it's dumb. Yes, it is true that Lysol kills bacteria. But Lysol will kill you if you drink it. So before it kills the bacteria. So you can't basically say drink Lysol. Okay. So that connection is where it becomes dumbed down, right? But the idea of the concept of, hey, this thing, that's not dumb. That's simplified. I want to go back for a second. I think you, you said at the beginning that something that uh, a lot of people right now are talking about the new normal and the idea that actually it's a new strange. You know, I, I, I've seen you talk about this in a, in a couple of webinars. And if we can just like, what what makes it a new strange versus a new normal? Three factors. So what I basically say is, what is that this crisis is unlike any other crisis that I've lived through, which is 40 years. Therefore, remember, I've not been through World War II, right? Or the Great Depression or the plague. So with the last 40 years, I've lived through MERS and SARS and 9-11 and dot-com crash and Great Recession. And the difference is that this one is a social, economic, and health crisis all occurring at the same time. Those were not. Two, 
this basically is happening globally. None of those were, including the Great Recession. Okay. Number three, this is impacting every human being, whether you're rich or you're poor. Obviously, it's hurting the poor and the disenfranchised much more. But you know, the governor of Ohio today was right. So, so, so it's affecting everybody. But the most important is when I wrote a book. When I wrote my book, my chapter on change sucks, which didn't make it into the chapter because I did a lot of research that I didn't actually write. The thing I realized is the reason why people find people difficult, people find it difficult to change, right? Among other things is you need to form a habit. And the way you form a habit is either you start or stop doing something for 60 days. All over the world, we're starting or stop doing something for 60 days, right? So in effect, we are, we are starting again versus restarting. So we have a fragile society. And let us look, for instance, at New York City. So I'll give, you know, many people are familiar with New York, and I'm a big fan of New York. So I give them the following. This is first I do my math, right? And people find this fascinating. So this is the true math. This is not like made up numbers. The island of Manhattan is what most people think about New York City. The island of Manhattan at two o'clock in the morning, not on a Saturday morning, but let's say on a Wednesday morning, right, has 1.1 million people living on it. However, at 1 p.m., it has 3.3 million, okay? There are 2.2 million people who come into Manhattan. Two million of those 2.2 million take a thing called the subway, okay, which is going to be unsafe for travel for a while, which is number one. Number two, one of the reasons why New York is so special is because of the energy. The energy is partly driven by its culture, including Broadway and everything else, its restaurants, and the half a million tourists that show up every day, mostly international. All of those don't exist. So there's the energy issue, okay? And then the third one, is there are 240,000 small businesses in New York that hire 3 million people. 80,000 of them are going to go out of business in the next month. Uh, so you put all of that together and you put something else together, which is unlike 9-11, which was 20 years ago, there's something now called Zoom and 5G and broadband. And every business has learned that they can actually do business with most of their workers at home. It may not be ideal, but they don't need all their workers. And so now the key, key question that people are asking is, why do you have to justify why you are not at the office? Why shouldn't the question be, when do I have to be at the office? And once you do that, the need for space in downtown Manhattan completely collapses. Okay, explain to me how that is it anything like normal. You have an entire city that for a year will have people every 31st of the month and 30th of the month, there is a run on U-Haul trucks as people are moving out of the city. And this is going to go on for a year and you think it's going to be back to normal? And if for anybody who doesn't believe, I say do the following, Google South Korea and COVID and see what it looks like, right? It looks like a dystopian novel. And so my whole stuff is this is a failure of imagination, 
right? We can't, we, we, we could, we couldn't, we, it's a failure of imagination. And now it's a failure of understanding how science works. So you have all these clowns who basically believe people can go back to school. Bullshit. Right? So my whole stuff is, here's the problem. People keep talking about data. And my stuff is you don't even know how to read it. And you, if it doesn't, if it, and by the way, if the, you don't like it, you, you claim it doesn't matter. That's stupid. You can't do that with data. If data says something, you got to respect it. You can't say, I refuse to accept it. That's what we do. Oh, we're living in a data-driven age. Really? Well, how come we're making all stupid, non-data-driven decisions when it comes to life and death? Yeah, that is all very true. So I know we have a, just a very little bit of time. The last question, I always like to close with more of a personal, um, so I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And I ask my guests to share either a drink or a dish that they really love or um, a, a piece of art, whether it's a novel, a song, a play, a movie, or something that has been meaningful to them and why. So I'll let you choose. So I, I will basically say that for me, uh, the ideal state is in the evening at the end of the day. I drink either a cold draft beer outside or an expensive single malt scotch. So I'll do the evening when I'm at home. Uh, single malt scotch, not expensive, it's just a single malt scotch with a uh, lint chocolate, milk chocolate, extra creamy goes very well with scotch, okay, so, you know, and I read my notes of my reading. So what I basically do is I read a lot and I mark everything I read and I, I underline and in some cases when it's really special, I put a star on it. I then take everything I've starred and I rewrite it in hand into a book. And then every evening I pull out that book which is like my years of reading, and I open it to a particular page. I have a little, you know, bookmark, and I read the distilled best thinking while basically having amazing chocolate and a scotch at the end of the day. Well, that is fantastic, Rishat. Thank you so much for your time. As usual, every time I hear you talk, and I'm so excited you were talking with me. It's fascinating. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much, and I'll be following you and your posts. Yeah, and, and as you know, I, I, I am now threatening to write a newsletter. Well, that would, that would be fantastic. I'll figure out a way. I'll make sure. I'll make sure to go on your site and subscribe to it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Since I love Rashad's book so much, I'm going to read all the reviews that people leave on Apple Podcasts and pick the most thoughtful one. I will send the writer of the review a copy of Restoring the Soul of Business. I will announce the recipient of the book at the end of my next episode. Rishad has also now launched his newsletter. If you want to read it or subscribe to it, you can find it at rishad.substack.com. That's spelled R-I-S-H-A-D dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Rishad.substack.com. If you like music, stick around. At the end of the credits, I am going to share another song by my wife, Susan Catania, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four, so al4ep.com, and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. This episode was produced and recorded by me. 
The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicholas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As we're getting into winter, I'm going to leave you with the song Abide. It's a song that Susan wrote after a snowstorm left us without heat and hot water for a couple of days. She was googling blizzards, and an article about the black blizzards from the Great Depression came up, and that is where the inspiration came from. Here it is, Abide. Come and 